doctors who couldn't wake up at 9 o'clock. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We pray that as we journey through a new series now, that your spirit might use this word to talk to us, to instruct us. And as you do, we pray that you would help us to love Christ more than we presently do, to see Christ bigger than we, more, than we currently do, to worship him more faithfully, to love him more dearly, to serve for him more effectively. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not just be informed by the word, but we would be transformed by the Holy Spirit through the word so that it might result in good for us, good for our neighbors and our city that we love and this world and glory for you. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes life can feel like you're missing something, right? Like uh, it's not all there, even spiritual life. So, for example, even if you're here and you know Jesus, it, that's all good and all. But sometimes you can't help but feel like, is this all there is, right? Like, when am I going to get a little bit further along or get that thing that I'm missing that's going to sort of round me out and complete me and make me whole? Uh, and sometimes it doesn't really help, even if you're a Christian, to look at other people who are further along sort of the giants of the faith, men and women that you respect. And when you look at them, you sort of begin to wonder, what is it that they have that I don't, right? What is it that God has seen fit to give to them that he hasn't really seen fit to give to me? Because when I look at them, they look so complete, and I feel so incomplete. Uh, they look like they're rounded out, and I feel like I'm lacking something. What's the sort of secret sauce? What's the ingredient here that I'm missing? What is it that they have that I don't? Right. And, and sometimes I can imagine as someone who was on that side of the stage before I was on this side. Sometimes when you're on that side of the stage, you imagine that, you know, it's the folks who are in ministry on this side of the stage. If they're pastors or Ph.D.s or professors, then they've sort of arrived and they've gotten it. And and now God has given them this close thing and they're mature and whole and perfect. But I can tell you as someone who is now on this side of the stage, it doesn't work that way at all. I, in fact, for all of us. We've got this question, this need of what do I do to become spiritually complete, full, lacking nothing, to have sort of arrived? Or, or to say it another way, how do I go from sort of JV Christianity to finally making varsity? How do I get the letter on my jacket? How do I, how do I finally arrive so that I'm considered and I know myself to be a varsity Christian? If you've ever been there, I think you're going to find the book of Colossians extremely helpful. Today we are starting a brand new sermon series and we're looking at the letter to the Colossians. And basically all we want to do today is just sort of look at the first two verses, the verses we stood together and read, those two verses. And we just want to sort of get our feet wet before we wade into the deep waters of this book in the coming weeks. So you've read it already, but let me put it fresh again in your ears and hear with me Colossians 1 verses 1 to 2. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, right off the bat, it will be helpful for you to know what we're sort of looking at. What we're in is an epistle. An epistle is just a big fancy word for letter. And, and knowing the genre is sort of helpful because it can help you know where you are in the Bible, right? So, for example, we just finished the book of Ruth, and Ruth was a book of history and narrative and story, and so we got that. 
There are other books of the Bible that are poetry and prophecy. Here, we've got something that we can all relate to really well because we know letters. We've written letters. We've received letters. You, you think of your emails, hundreds of letters back and forth every day. And so we know how letters work. And so Colossians is a book that we can get some handles on because we know how letters work. Right? We know, dear John, how are you doing? Sincerely, Ajay. We, we get how letters work. In the same way, it'll be helpful to know that letters back then had sort of a standard feel as well. In fact, when a letter started back then, you had sort of three ingredients that you'd get right off the bat. You'd, you'd learn the author who was writing the letter. You'd get the recipient who was getting the letter. And you'd get some kind of greeting, some kind of how are you. And it's the same way here. For example, in the verses we just read, you get those three things in the letter. The first two verses are that opening. So right off the bat, in verse 1, it starts with the author. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Right off the bat, in verse 1, we know who wrote the letter, the author. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, depending on how familiar you are with the Bible, there's a good chance you've heard of Paul. He's authored about 50% of the New Testament. And if you're familiar with Paul, there's a good chance you may have also heard of his partner in ministry, his co-laborer, his best of friend. In fact, what he calls here his brother, Timothy. A and if you've heard these two, then you know that they've written many letters. But if you haven't, if you're not familiar with these names, I would highly recommend that you turn left in the book and keep going till you get to Acts and start reading around chapter 7. And there you're introduced to this character and the great story of the man Paul, also known as Saul. If, in fact, you do go to chapter 7 and you begin reading, what you find is that this man is basically a Christian killer. He's a persecutor of the church. He hated Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus or the church. In fact, if you read Acts 9, you find that he's breathing threats and violence, sort of the oxygen that fills his lungs, the thing that keeps him going. His mission in life is to exterminate Christianity, to end Christians, to make sure Jesus is not known or praised by anyone. That's who Saul is. And you read of his incredible conversion in Acts chapter 9. Because what you find in Acts chapter 9 is while Saul is busy hunting Christians, God was hunting Saul. Right? While Saul was out there trying to capture Christians, God was trying to capture Paul. And so you read of this in Acts 9. Because in Acts 9, the resurrected Jesus Christ appears to Paul. And at that very moment, Paul becomes the very thing he hated most in the world. He becomes a Christian. He becomes the very thing he had despised with all the fibers of his being. The one thing he had resisted, the one thing he didn't want to become, he becomes. Because in Acts 9, Jesus appears and wins this man, and Saul becomes Paul and becomes a Christian. Now, I want you to hear, that's no small thing. It's not something we just gloss over. It would be like if you turned on CNN tonight and you heard that Muhammad Muhammad, the man who, as Pastor Binu mentioned, responsible, the strategist, the architect, the mastermind for slaughtering 147 Christians in Kenya. 
the one who went and came up with a plan to target and hunt Christians, whose life mission is to end Christianity, if you turned on CNN tonight and found out that that same man was now a worshiper of Jesus Christ, was now a follower of Christ, was now spreading the very faith he had sought to exterminate. And moreover, if you heard that he was now going from city to city, starting congregations, planting churches, that would be what it's like to hear that Saul of Tarsus has become a Christian. It was stunning. It was breathtaking for anyone who heard it that Saul had become a follower of Jesus. That's why Paul in this greeting says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's Paul's way of saying, this was not my doing. This wasn't my choice. This wasn't what I was looking for, right? Paul wasn't in elementary school at career day going, when I grow up, I want to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the last thing he was looking for, the last thing he wanted. This was by the will of God. No, this, this was God's will in my life. This was God's doing. God pinned me down and won my heart. And here's the thing. Some of you would know that very well. Some of you would be able to say the same exact thing. In fact, I've heard some of your stories enough to know you too had a time in life where you had no intention of being a Christian. Some of you sitting here right now may be in that place. No thought of Christianity. If you were to ask, to be honest, you'd say, look, I, I thought Christians were weird and judgmental and intolerant and holier than thou and hated science and voted Republican. I wanted nothing to do with church, nothing to do with Christians, nothing to do with Jesus. And yet some of you know, but here I am by the will of God. I, I'm here a Christian because though I resisted and though I rebelled and though I ran, God hunted me down too captured me, caught me, and I am here because I'm a Christian, right? Your greeting, many of you would start the same way. John, a, a Christian by the will of God. Mike, a Christian by the will of God. That is that this was God's doing. And here's the good news, friends. God does this all the time. He, he's in the business of winning his most ardent opponents. He does it all the time. For example, this week I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia with the kids at bedtime. So I'm reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis, undoubtedly a name you've heard. And if you've heard of C.S. Lewis, you've heard also that perhaps that he was for a long time in his life uh, a major proponent of atheism and rationalism. He wanted nothing to do with God, certainly nothing to do with Jesus. His mom had passed away when he was just a boy, and he didn't understand why God wouldn't have rescued and saved if there was a God. And so he turned to the conclusion that there must be no God, embraced rationalism and atheism, and was a proponent everywhere until God hunted him down and captured his heart. In fact, in speaking about his conversion to Christianity, after a lot of resisting and a lot of rebelling and a lot of running away and a lot of not wanting anything to do with church, Jesus, or Christianity, he speaks of himself and he described himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. Right? That, that's Lewis's way of saying, I, I wasn't looking for this. He describes himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. In fact, when he tells the account of how he became a Christian, he tells the story of how he was riding in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. And they're on their way to the zoo. And here's his account. 
He says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. Right? Isn't that wonderful? I left for the zoo with my brother in the side of his motorcycle, and I wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Jesus. I had no thought about any of this. By the time we reached the zoo, I was a Christian. Because that's what God does. And, and I'm pretty sure that God loves to do that because God gains great glory from winning even his most ardent former enemies. L like, let me give you an example. If you're an Eagles fan, and of course you should be, right? If you're an Eagles fan, what's the only thing better than beating the Cowboys? Okay, beating the Giants. Let's stay with the Cowboys for now, right? What, what, what will be this season the only thing better than beating the Cowboys? It'll be having DeMarco Murray, the former Cowboy, on your team as you beat the Cowboys, right? I mean, think of the poetry of that, the beauty of that. Our former enemy, the star running back of the Cowboys, is now going to wear our jersey to beat the Cowboys. I mean, I, like a single tear should fall. That's how beautiful that is, right? And that's what God loves to do all the time. God loves to win his enemies the very ones who oppose the gospel as the means by which he's going to spread the gospel. God loves to take the very ones who wanted nothing to do with the church to be the ones who are going to plant the church. God loves to take the ones who wanted nothing to do with Jesus to be the most ardent and faithful worshipers of Jesus. That's what happened with Paul. So that Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And you'll notice, you've heard now a few times, Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. That is, you and I are Christian by the will of God, but Paul adds a title that's in a category all its own, different from ours. Paul's not just a Christian by the will of God. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle there is this official term, right? And, and what it was is in the New Testament, there's two criteria for what it takes to be an apostle. In the New Testament, you'll find that the criteria is, one, you have to be a man who has been directly commissioned by Jesus. So Jesus has himself come and commissioned you. And two, you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, called directly by Jesus and have seen the resurrected living Christ. And Paul meets both these criteria. Though he says in 1 Corinthians, one untimely born, late to the game, I did myself see the resurrected Jesus. And I was myself called by name by that Lord Jesus, and he made me an apostle. And an apostle was one who was then authorized as a representative of Jesus Christ, so that when you heard from an apostle, it was as good as if you were hearing from Jesus himself. Right? You need to hear that. When Paul says an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's as if you're hearing from Jesus' mouth himself. It's Paul's way of saying, you know those Bibles that have the red letters and the black letters? It's saying the same spirit that inspired the red letters is the spirit that inspired the black letters, and both carry the same weight. The same spirit that spoke through the mouth of Jesus is the same spirit that spoke through the writings of Paul. Paul bears Jesus' authority. So when he starts this letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, you can be sure that the recipients of that letter immediately sat up in their chairs and leaned in and listened carefully because Jesus was about to speak, even if it be through the writing of Paul. So that's who's writing the letter. 
That's the author. Now then, who's he writing to? Who's the recipient? And verse 2 tells us. Because verse 2 says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace to you is sort of like our how are you. Hope you're well. It's just a much better way to start a letter, right? It's the greeting of grace to you. Grace, that great Christian word, the theme of all themes for a Christian. Grace, God's unmerited grace, what he did rather than what I did. Grace to you and peace. Peace, that Jewish word that meant shalom, like everything's right. Your life is working. Everything fits. Everything's in harmony. Shalom, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Well, who's the to you? He tells us. The saints and faithful brothers, we'll come back to that, in Christ at Colossae. So what Paul's doing is he's writing to a bunch of Christians in a city called Colossae. Now just some background on that. Colossae would have been what we now call Turkey, right? And it was one of three cities in the bottom of Asia Minor as it was known then. And Paul is writing this letter to a bunch of Christians in Colossae. And as you read the letter, what you come to find out is that Paul himself had actually never been to Colossae. It's kind of odd. It's one of the rare letters in the New Testament, one of the rare churches that gets a letter from Paul that he himself didn't plan. Instead, as you read the letter, you come to find out Paul's never been there. In fact, let me show you. Colossians 2, verse 1. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Right? Do you hear it there? Paul's saying, I, I want you to know I have this great burden for all these churches that are down there in the bottom of Turkey. Laodicea, you'll meet another city called Hierapolis, and Colossae, and all these folks who have not seen my face, and I haven't seen your face either. Paul didn't plant this church. Instead, what you find as you read chapters 1 through 4 of Colossians is you're introduced to a different guy, a man named Epaphras. And as the weeks go, we'll get into his story. And Epaphras is a great pastor, a wonderful church planter. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul speaks of him and introduces him and says, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant who, who is brought the gospel to you. In chapter 4, he'll talk of Epaphras and he says, Epaphras greets you, who is one of you. As in, Epaphras is also a Colossian. Who is one of you, he greets you, and I bear you witness, he is constantly struggling for you in prayer. He's a wonderful pastor and planter of this church. And so what happens is that Epaphras is likely a convert under Paul's ministry. For the sake of time, I won't give you all the background, but while Paul didn't go to Colossae, he did spend a number of years at Ephesus. And while he was standing in Ephesus, Acts 19, verse 10, if you go and look at it, will tell you the word of God spread throughout all of Asia. Now, Paul's based in Ephesus, and yet Acts tells us the word went to all of Asia. And that is because while he was there, men and women from all over came to him, became Christian, and brought the gospel back to their city. Epaphras was likely one of these who had come to Ephesus, met Paul, met Jesus, become a Christian, went back home, and he planted a church. In fact, Acts, Colossians 4.13 is going to tell us he didn't plant just one church here. He planted three churches, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. And so sometime after that, Paul gets imprisoned, and here's what happens. Epaphras has planted this church, 
Paul, the apostle, is now in jail. And so Epaphras goes to visit Paul in prison. If you keep reading and you come across the letter of Philemon, you get the clue that Epaphras likely ends up sharing a cell with Paul because he gets arrested too. But while they're there and Epaphras goes to see the apostle, Paul, you can imagine that they begin to have a conversation. And Paul says, tell me, Epaphras, how are the grandkids doing? Right? Because that's what they are. Epaphras is his spiritual son. So Epaphras' spiritual sons and daughters are now Paul's grandkids. And so Paul says, how are the grandkids doing? And Epaphras begins, Paul, they're doing really well. They love Jesus. And they love one another. And there's so much that God is doing in this young church. But there is one thing. And he begins to share with Paul this one significant concern that he has. I think of this when I think of Shino and I and the conversations we have about our own kids. As we'll try and think constantly about how are the kids doing, where are they in this season. We'll often talk and we'll have so much to say and thank God for. Often we say to each other, these are the greatest kids two parents could have. And this is going well and this is wonderful. And then every now and then, there, but there is this one thing. And then we go, okay, that's what we got to look at and we, we got to work on. In a very similar way, the tone of the letter to the Colossians, for the most part, is very friendly and very favorable. This is a good church, a healthy church with some great young Christians who love Jesus and love one another. And so much is going right. But there is one concern. There is one major thing going on. And Epaphras begins to unpack for Paul his concern. And here's what the concern is. As you read through Colossians, you begin to find out that there's sort of this idea spreading around the city, sort of in the atmosphere, sort of in the air, and it's beginning to seep into the church at Colossae, these ideas about what it means to be really spiritual, what it means to be really spiritual, like really spiritually complete, to be full, to be a, a varsity Christian, sort of these notions going around of what it takes to be an elite Christian. And sort of the idea floating around is Jesus is good, but he's not enough. Colossians, you're missing something. You need to add a little bit more if you're going to be really rounded out and whole and, and mature and perfect. As you read some of the scholars and commentators, they're not exactly sure where this thing is coming from. They're not sure, you know, is there a, a false teacher out there that's minimizing Jesus or distorting the gospel? Or is it rather that in Colossae you're going to have lots of Jews and lots of Gentiles, and so you've got sort of this pagan Jewish mix of ideas that's floating all around and seeping into the church. Sort of like secular ideas and religious ideas put into a blender, blended up real good, and this weird spiritual goo that comes out. And the Colossians are starting to drink this in, and it's affecting their spirituality. As you read the letter, you get this idea that these ideas, these false notions of what it takes to be really spiritually elite are floating around in the air, and now they're starting to fill the lungs of the Colossians. They're breathing this stuff in, and Paul is concerned. As you read the letter, you get some hints of what this teaching, this idea, these false notions were. For example, when you get to chapter 1 and 2, you get the sense of, look, Jesus is good, but if you want to be really spiritually elite, you need to have visions also or some kind of spiritual experience or some kind of charismatic moment. That's what it takes to be really at the next level. 
Or, or then you keep reading, Jesus is good, but if you want to be really complete and not lacking anything, you need to fast. And you need to watch these certain holy days and celebrate these certain festivals. And when you do those things, then you get rounded out and really whole and really full and really complete. You keep reading, Jesus is good, chapter 2. But if you really want power over the forces of spiritual darkness, you need this thing, this little bit of wisdom, this extra knowledge. And once you get it, then you'll be complete. Essentially, what it came down to is this subtle suggestion that's floating in the air and starting to fill the Colossian lungs. Jesus is good, but he's not enough. And listen, Sebmaro, we breathe in the same kind of air. Before we imagine this is a letter way in the distant past, totally unrelated to us, I want you to hear that the same kind of thing floats around us and can seep very much into our lungs as well. You see, every generation finds a way to pervert the gospel. Every culture finds a way to minimize Christ and reduce Christianity. We've got our own spiritual goo. We've got our own concoctions of religious ideas and secular ideas put in a blender that without us even knowing begin to seep into our lungs. For example, just think with me for a moment. Like, on the one hand, you've got the sort of subtle suggestion that comes from the world all around us. There's no formal church, no specific teacher of this, no specific movement or leader, but it's sort of the atmosphere we all breathe. And that atmosphere would be, Jesus is good, don't get me wrong, but of course you can't stop there. To be a well-rounded, respectable, complete, mature person in modern society, you certainly can't stop at just Jesus. And so words we've heard are things like tolerance. Right? If you're going to be a full, rounded, respectable person in modern society, you've got to be tolerant. And that, that means you've got to acknowledge that all faiths and all worldviews are completely equal, totally value, valuable and valid. And it would be intolerant for you, Christian, to think that you alone have access to God. What a small, narrow-minded, provincial elementary way of thinking because if you would advance and get more educated and get more intelligent you would know we've got to embrace all these things no every path our world and culture would say every worldview every religion has something to offer and the sophisticated person will listen to all of them in order to gain a more fuller understanding of what divine god is and there you hear it fuller jesus is good but if you're going to be fuller if you're going to be more complete, if you're going to be in today's society, you need a bit more than Jesus. Anything less would be narrow-minded and small and provincial. Jesus is good, but certainly you cannot stop there. Do you hear it? The, the subtle suggestion, it's not coming from any one voice. It's sort of the air we all breathe, and it begins to seep into our lungs. And essentially, the suggestion is Jesus is good, but he's not enough. On the other hand, listen, what may be even more dangerous is not the atmosphere that's floating out there, but what begins to spring up from right within here. Not the secular part of the concoction, but the religious ingredients in the concoction is all the more dangerous and probably what you and I are more privy and susceptible to. It's the stuff that comes up within the broad tent of Christianity. For example, in just speaking with some of you, I know from your own stories 
having grown up in the church, that several of you, many of you, have felt like you were second-class Christians because you had Jesus, but you didn't have more. Right? Do you believe in Jesus, that he's the Son of God, that he died for you, he rose again for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. But you were told, if you don't have this charismatic experience, this spiritual moment, this additional thing, you're always going to be on the bench in JV because you'll never be promoted to varsity because this additional thing is what it takes to be a varsity Christian. Or others of you grew up around or in churches or groups or denominations that would tell you what you have is a good start. Don't get me wrong. But if you're going to be full, if you're going to be complete, real Christians, varsity level, you need this. You need this practice. You need this form of worship. You need this style. You need this tradition that, oh, by the way, we alone have. And until you have it, you're not fully there. You've got a good start, but come here and you'll be full. A a man named Bishop Stephen Neal, he hits it right on the head when he says this. Listen to this quote. He says, one thing is quite clear. The false teachers came in with the claim that they would complete and perfect the simple and elementary faith to which the Colossians have been introduced by Paul and his friends. This is what the false teachers always do. What you have is quite all right and a good foundation for faith. Now let us just finish it off for you, and you really will be Christians. He goes on to say, all this is very sad, but it may help us realize that we are not really so very far off from the New Testament and its problems. You hear what he's saying? from outside and from inside, secular and religious, the sort of atmosphere we begin to breathe in is Jesus is a great start. But that's what he is, a start. And you've got to add on some more to finish it out, to round it out, to be complete, to be whole. Jesus is good, but he's not enough. And listen, Zabmada, If there is one thing the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate in this entire letter, it's this. It's Colossian. It's Christian. It's believer at Seven Mile Road. Listen, you have Jesus. And that means that you have everything you need because Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. If there's one thing Paul is trying to communicate in the letter to the Colossians, it's Christian, you have everything. You lack nothing because you have Jesus, and Jesus is completely supreme and totally sufficient, and you have everything you need in Jesus. You lack nothing. You don't need anything more. What you are to do is to continue in Jesus, grow in Jesus, but not add to Jesus. The letter to the Colossians is Paul's loud declaration of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ over and above all things. In fact, in this letter, what Paul does is he goes to great lengths to show you that the reason you and I think that we need to add something to Jesus is because we have not scratched the surface of who Jesus is, how amazing he is, and what we have in having him. Paul's convinced you don't believe. And I don't believe the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus and all that is ours because he is ours. And so Paul labors in four chapters to try and communicate and convince you how amazing Jesus is, how sufficient Jesus is. 
The idea floating around is Jesus is good, but, and Paul says, but nothing, but nothing. Because, hear this, whether you add something to the gospel or subtract something from the gospel, you mess up the gospel. The gospel's funny math that way. Because whether you add something to the gospel or take something out of the gospel, you pervert the gospel. Either by addition or subtraction, you minimize and distort the gospel. Right? If I take something out of the gospel, if I walk around saying Jesus was not fully God, then I've messed up the gospel. But if I begin to add something to the gospel and say, yes, Jesus is good, but you also need this. Whatever that this is now messes up the gospel as well. Whether by adding or taking away, there's a distortion of the gospel if you leave it as anything but Jesus is supreme and sufficient. You see, the math of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. Because Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. And as you read the letter to the Colossians, Paul is breaking his back trying to tell you all the amazing things about Jesus Christ. He is unapologetically centered on Christ. In fact, if you begin to read Colossians chapter 1, you'll read in verse 13 that he's our deliverer. Verse 14, he's our redeemer. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. You keep going and he's above all creation. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, who is before all things and made all things and upholds all things. He's the head of the church, the beginning, the first to resurrect from the dead. He's the preeminent one, the fullness of God, reconciler, our peacemaker. He's the knowledge of God, the mystery of God. He's the head and rule of all authority. He's canceled our debts. He's defeated spiritual powers. He's triumphed over our enemies. And that is just up to chapter 2. That's just chapter 2. Because Paul uses phrase after phrase after phrase, word after word to communicate to you the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ and to convince the Colossians, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. You lack nothing. And so what remains is continue in him, grow in him, stay in him. Don't add anything to him because Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. And so Paul says, what matters is if a man is in Christ, then he has everything that he needs. Are you in Christ? Then you have everything that you need. In fact, that's how Paul begins. Remember, 1 verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Do you hear it? To the faithful who are in Christ. In fact, in the original, in the Greek, they're both the same word. You're in Colossae and you're in Christ. So he's essentially saying, look, your Colossae is your physical location, but Christ is your spiritual location. Where you are, your address is Colossae, but where you are truly, your address is Christ. The Christian is the one who is in Christ. That's what a Christian is. Christian is not something you're born into. It's not just a label you add on to something. It's not an adjective to describe some kind of music. A Christian is a noun. It's one who is in Christ. The man or the woman who is in Christ, who is located in Christ, is the Christian. In fact, in Christ is one of Paul's most favorite phrases. He, in the New Testament, you'll find 200 different times or more how we are in Christ or in the Lord or in Jesus Christ our Lord. Over and over again, Paul wants to say, here's what matters. Here's what it takes to be varsity Christianity. 
Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, you have all that you need. And in this letter, Paul says, there's two implications for those who are in Christ. Let me give you these two and then we'll be done. There's two things that it means, two implications of what it means to be in Christ. And the first affects our vertical relationship with God. And the second affects our horizontal relationship with one another. Because he addresses the Colossians and he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. So here's the first. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. First of all, all those in Christ are saints. Now look at me. Listen to me for a second. What do you think of when you hear the word saint? Undoubtedly, some of you have already imagined the dish on top of the head that's glowing and emanating. Some of you imagine some icon or some statue, right? If nothing else, what you think of when you think of a saint is someone who's perfect, someone who's spiritually complete. I mean, we've talked about varsity Christian. That's what a saint is, right? A, a saint is a, a varsity Christian, perfect, uh, whole, arrived. I was reading this week about what it takes to be declared a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. It takes five steps, right? Five steps to be declared a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Step one, you have to die because only dead people can be saints. And when you're dead, you have to have lived such a, and the term is heroically virtuous life, that your local bishop begins to investigate your life and see whether it holds true. That's holds true. That's step one. In step two, if you are nominated for that heroically virtuous exemplary life and your nomination has been accepted, you are now promoted to the official title of servant of God. And now in servant of God, the acceptance of your nomination promotes you and now inquiry begins whether you have lived this heroically virtuous and exemplary life. In step three, you become venerable. And in venerable, it means you have lived an extremely virtuous life, exemplary in every way, but they are not yet ready to declare that you are, in fact, in heaven. In step four, you are pronounced as blessed. And blessed means that now we are comfortable declaring that you have lived an extremely virtuous life, heroically exemplary in every way, and that you are in heaven, and we know that because you accomplished one miracle. And then in step five, if you've gotten through the first four, in step five, it takes all that other stuff, a heroically virtuous life, an exemplary life, and holy and perfect in every way, and you're dead, and you've accomplished miracle, and now you've got a second miracle to your name. A heroically exemplary life, virtuous in every way, and two miracles. Now you contrast that with what Paul requires to call you a saint. Here's his one requirement. Are you in Christ? Then you're a saint. Here's the one requirement, that you be in Christ. And if that's true of you, Paul would honestly look you in the face and say, Saint Kostya and Saint Misha would look little old poor me in the face and address us as saint. What grace, grace and peace to you, what grace that the work of God was sufficient for us as to transform our very identity. I mean, just think of this. Paul looks at a bunch of young, immature Christians at Colossae, 
baby Christians that are just learning to walk and wobbling. In fact, they are right now itself teetering and in danger of falling into false teaching. Let alone that they've lived long enough to live a heroically exemplary life or virtuous in every way or perform two miracles. This group of baby Christians that are barely hanging on and are about to perhaps even fall into false teaching are the ones that Paul looks and says to the saints in Christ at Colossae. Because when you and I think of what qualifies you or me for sainthood, you think of your excellence and whether it measures up. But when Paul thinks of what qualifies you, when the scriptures think of what qualifies you for sainthood, it thinks of Christ's excellence. And certainly it measures up. In Paul's mind, Christian, you don't lack anything. You, you want to get to varsity Christianity, be in Christ. And goodness, you're a saint, is how the scriptures see you. You don't lack anything. You're complete in every way. In fact, I isn't it astounding to you and to me to think that the New Testament refers to those who are in Christ, little old poor you and me, as saint far more than it does even sinner. Because what happens, as one pastor said, is when you are in Christ, sinning becomes your occasional activity, but saint becomes your new identity. Sinning is what I do occasionally, and, and I'm broken about it. But saint is now my new identity. And so the New Testament goes over and over again to call you who you really are now in Christ. Holy ones, set apart, not by what you have done, but by what Jesus has done for you. So to the saints at Colossae. And second, he says, all those who are in Christ are now brothers and sisters. Before God, you and I stand as set-apart holy ones, and before one another, all who are in Christ are brothers and sisters to the saints and faithful brothers. And in the original language, that brothers there encompasses all the family, brothers and sisters. And so what that means is if a man is in Christ, he is my full brother. If a woman is in Christ, she is my full sister. This pastor from Britain named Richard Lucas, he rightly says, we're all fine to welcome and appreciate the different things that our backgrounds, our particular Christian groupings, our denominations gave us. That's all fine. But what we must never do is tell someone who is in Christ, who has joy in Christ, who is a saint in Christ, that unless you join us and become one of us and get this one additional thing that we have, you'll never be a full Christian. That we must never do. Because if you are in Christ, then you are fully my brother. You lack nothing that I have. I lack nothing that you have. What remains for both of us is to grow in Christ. And what that does is humble us, Christian, as we relate to one another. We have no leg up on anyone else. Because what matters is, are you in Christ? And in Christ, all of us are equal. And we Christians don't really like that. We, we'd like to say, yes, everyone's equal in Christ, but some are just a little bit more equal than others, right? And Paul comes and says, are you in Christ? Then you complete. You lack nothing. Because Jesus Christ is supreme and sufficient. Seven Mile Road, hear me. The flag that we wave over above us is not the name of our church. 
It's never going to be the denomination or the group or the network that we're a part of. We're never going to stand under a banner with anything on it but Jesus Christ. He's our boast. He's what we brag about. Our boast is not in some subsequent thing that we added on. Our boast is in Jesus Christ. Our fame, our glory, our praise is in him. So this morning, what is your boast? Let it be, as Paul would tell the Colossians, in Christ and in Christ alone. So as we wade through this book in the weeks to come, here's what I want to say. By the permission of the scripture, as Paul would say to you, if Jesus himself were speaking to you, he would say to you, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Seven Mile Road, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You have Jesus. And because he is totally sufficient and completely supreme, you have everything you need. Amen. Let's pray together.